Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large. And I think you'll see today that uh, what you're going to talk, we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans, but it does have implications for how that came about. Our complete card emission statement, which we've worked on, is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. We try to minimize complex organizational structures and hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merle Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler from the University of Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. I want a special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago, and I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response, and we'll end with some uh, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. It's my pleasure to introduce the next speaker, Peter Parham, who is from Stanford University and who has an interest in very unique parts of the genomes. It's the parts of the genome uh, that are in the uh, major histocompatibility complex. Uh, It's the most varied and diverse part of the genome of humans and our fellow primates. And uh, Peter has, among many other things, shared some very valuable uh, resources, namely immortalized white blood cells from various uh, chimpanzees and bonobos with many uh, of us. And we continue to use those. So there's a little diaspora of in vitro grade apes that only exists thanks to the effort of uh, Peter and his team. 
So with no further ado, um, Peter Parham, please. So I'm going to focus my talk on the subject that Pascal has already introduced, which is this. This is a white blood cell. It's not yellow, as he told us. And the white blood cell that we're going to look at is the natural killer cell, which is different from the B and the T cells that are more commonly discussed. Uh, and the natural killer cell has turned out to be involved in two major systems, the immune system and the reproductive system. And it's involved in innate immunity. And innate immunity is able to get rid of an infection before it starts to cause any of the disease symptoms that two of the other speakers have talked to you about in the previous session. So that with innate immunity, you can get rid of infections, you don't get sick, and you can be competitive. It's involved in killing virus-infected cells. It can also kill cancer cells. And when innate immunity isn't sufficient to get rid of an infection, the natural killer cell helps transition the immune response into that of the B and T cell, the, uh, the adaptive immune response. Now, the natural killer cell is also the major white blood cell that's found in the uterus. And it plays a major role in the menstrual cycle and in the implantation of the embryo uh, during early pregnancy. It interacts with the fetal cells of the trophoblasts and serves to remodel the maternal blood vessels that are going to provide uh, the fetus uh, with nutrition uh, throughout pregnancy. And this is just a diagram showing you what the natural killer cell does, and this comes from the work of Ashley Moffat at Cambridge, uh, who has been a leader in this field, is that in the non-pregnant uterus, you have these spiral arteries. <clears throat> and in a pregnant uterus, the trophoblasts, which are highly aggressive cells, are triggered by the NK cell to strip off the, the lining of the blood vessels and to make these high-conductance channels that can provide the placenta and the fetus with blood. So the NK cell is involved in two very important things that are necessary uh, for the survival of individuals and populations and species. Um, if you don't have your immune system when you're young, you never get to be of reproductive age. And if you can't reproduce, uh, if you can't reproduce then, then the population can't continue into the next generation. So that uh, the selection upon, this, upon these cells is, is, is very strong. As Pascal said... Um, the HLA complex, which is the major histocompatibility complex in humans, uh, has been studied for 50 years because it's the major genetic factor affecting whether transplanted tissues are rejected uh, in, in clinical transplantation. Uh, clinical labs routinely type these genes by DNA sequencing. Uh, these are the number of protein variants that have been described in the human population. It's over... 1500 for HLA-B, and as China has become, has got into the DNA sequencing business, uh, the number of new variants that is coming up every month is just increasing exponentially. So these are very, very variable systems. These provide the ligands for the receptors on the natural killer cells. These are expressed on all tissues, uh, and there are two major complexes of receptors. There's the natural killer cell complex, uh, which makes... Uh, receptors that resemble lectins in their structure. Uh, and an example of this is the highly conserved interaction between HLA-E, which is not a very polymorphic uh, HLA molecule, and the CD94 NKG2A receptor here. This is something that we all share, and the, and the functions are 
pretty similar from one person to another. And then there's the leukocyte receptor complex on, on chromosome 19, which are receptors that are made up of antibody-like domains. And this is a highly diversified interaction in which the receptors are also highly polymorphic, and they're interacting with these highly polymorphic ligands, both encoded on different chromosomes and segregating independently. Now, I'd just like to give you a little uh, primer on, on how these cells work. Uh, this is a, an NK cell, which has the CD94 NKG2A inhibitory receptor that interacts with HLA-E. And if this cell, this could be an epithelial cell or any other cell, is healthy, this interaction takes place and the NK cell is inhibited so that the NK cells grow up to be tolerant of healthy cells. If you have an infected cell or a malignant cell, the expression of HLA can be changed in various ways, either in subtle ways or in, in, in more dramatic ways where you lose expression completely. Then the NK cell is not inhibited, and so it makes cytokines that recruit other cells of the immune system to come and help destroy the cell, and cytotoxins that actually get into the cell and cause it to, to lice. And so this is the basis for how NK cells work, that they, they survey other cells for the presence of MHC class 1, uh, and they deal with the cell if, if it's perturbed due to unhealth. Now, the KIRs work in exactly the same way. Uh, they're inhibitory KIRs. Uh, this is an example of HLAC interacting with KIR2DL, and it's exactly the same. If the expression is good, the cell is tolerated. If there's perturbed expression then the cell is killed. And, and that's, that's the basic biology of, of how the NK cell recognizes things that are going on in, in the body. This just shows you the list of the different KIRs. They have different numbers of Ig domains. Some of them are inhibitory. Some of them are, are activating. Uh, and these are their target ligands. Some of them are well described. Others are still uh, under investigation. But there are polymorphic determinants of HLA-A, HLA-B and HLA-C, as well as HLA-G, which is specifically expressed on the trophoblast and is involved in the reproductive side of this function. This is an analysis just to show you that these variations that we see in human populations are of functional importance. This is an experiment to look at the NK cell response to when a particular NK cell carrying a certain receptor detects the absence of its ligand on an unhealthy target. And if we look at the constant CD94 NKG2A response, and we looked in this experiment at 58 different individuals, you can see that the immune response, and as some of you know, immune cellular assays are rather haphazard and have high signal, uh, low signal-to-noise ratios, you can see that this is a very tight uh, gathering of these data points, showing that we are all pretty much the same when we're using this receptor. On the other hand, if we look at different combinations of the KIRs and with different uh, HLA ligands, that these ligands all have the same basic epitope that interacts with this receptor, but the response varies. And some of these combinations are better than the constant one, and some of them are not so good. So the KIRs provide a modulation of this basic response, and it fine-tunes the NK cell response in different people in different ways. What we're looking at here are four different alleles of this receptor gene interacting with the same ligand. And again, you can see there's a diversity of response. 
So the whole focus of this talk, which is, is somewhat different from the previous ones, is that we're looking at variation that we want that is of functional importance. We're not looking at neutral variation, but we're trying to see how this variation is causing functional differences. Now, the Keir locus is part of uh, chromosome 19, and this is a very gene-rich part of the human genome. It's densely packed with genes, and a lot of them are involved in innate immunity and reproduction. And so the, the theme that we began to see with these KIRs is, 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 may carry out onto other genes in this part of the chromosome. So this is the Keir locus. This particular haplotype, you can see there's about, I think, nine genes. The locus comprises a framework, which are these genes, which are highly conserved. Basically, most haplotypes have these four genes. And then in between, there are regions of variability. And this is gene content uh, variability. And this is an example of haplotypes that are quite common uh, in, in various populations. And here are our framework genes, and here are the regions of gene variability. And we can divide these haplotypes into two broad groups, which are called A and B. And the A haplotypes uh, only have one activating receptor, which is this one here, 2DS4, and mainly inhibitory receptors, whereas the group B haplotypes have got uh, quite a range and variety of the activating receptors, which are the red ones, as well as the inhibitory receptors. There are hundreds of these haplotypes in the human population, and laid over and above that is allelic polymorphism of these receptor genes. You may know that when you look at the HLA type of individuals, unless they're identical twins, pairs of individuals have different HLA types. The same is exactly true for genotyping these care genes. When you, when you genotype for care, most people in this audience will have different genotypes. So these two combine to create an enormous potential for immune diversity in the population. Now, one of the studies that we have done is to look at other species to see how they compare for this care locus. And one of the reasons that prompted this was that the mouse, which is the favorite model for immunologists, does not have any functional care genes. That even though that's what 90% of immunologists are studying, the mouse doesn't have these genes, and neither does the domestic dog. If you look at other species, such as the pig and the seal, you find there's a single active care gene. Even when you go to the prosimians, there is no expansion of the care locus. In fact, these are pseudogenes, so there's no functional care in prosimians. You start to see the action when you get to the simian primates. You find it in uh, New World monkeys, Old World monkeys, uh, and the great apes. And so this is an aspect of immunity which has recently evolved in the last 40 or 50 million years, probably. Even though innate immunity is something that works early on in the immune response and has traditionally thought to be of rather ancient origin. This is showing how in the line leading to humans, this new aspect to the regulation of NK cells has evolved. If you look at the New World monkeys, even though they have cares, they seem to be quite different lineages of care than we see in humans. Whereas when you get to rhesus macaque and the apes, you can see a progression in which the cares are basically of the same lineages as what we see in humans. 
So this is summarizing a lot of data that has been done by many people in the lab, uh, most recently by Laurent Abi Rached, but also by Raj Rajalingam uh, and several others. Is that here we're looking at the different HLA class 1 genes. The oldest one is HLA-E, which interacts with that conserved non-care receptor, CD94 NKG2A. Then you find G and A and then B, and then finally C is the most recent evolved of, of, of the class 1 genes. And these are the epitopes, BW4, C1, and C2. These are the epitopes that interact with uh, the care, the human care. And you find that BW4 goes back into the old world monkeys. C1 originally evolved on the HLA-B locus, and then the HLA-C locus evolved as a specialized locus, which, which captured that epitope. And then C2 is an epitope that you find not in orangutans, but with gorillas, chimpanzees, and humans. And so what we can see with this evolution of these ligands is a commensurate evolution of the care. So, for example, gibbons have lost HLA-C and HLA-G, and they have lost a lot of the care locus, and particularly the, the care that interact with those, um, with those ligands. In the old world monkeys, you see an expansion of lineage 2, which interacts with HLA-B, and then in orangutans, you start to see the expansion of lineage 3 that interacts with the HLA-C locus. And this expansion continues into humans and into chimpanzees. So this, this has been a lot of work, and it went through a lot of complicating stages, but it's actually ended up being quite simple, that we can track the expansion of, of the HLA genes and the expansion of the Kia genes. Even though the chimps have a lot of the components uh, of the care system that we see in humans. When you look at the fine details of the care locus in the chimp and compare it to humans, there's considerable differences. Here's the care locus, and these are our framework genes. In humans, the, gene, uh, the individual genes are dispersed between these two segments, the centromeric end and the telomeric end. And in humans, recombination in this region is a major way to generate, to generate haplotype diversity. On the other hand, in the chimps, you find that this part of the locus is empty. But there's a massive expansion of genes that all encode HLA-C receptors down here at the centromeric end. So that's one difference, this genomic organization. In the chimpanzee, all of these cures are high-affinity receptors for HLA-C, both activating and inhibitory. Whereas in humans, the inhibitory genes are high affinity, but many of the activating genes or receptors have been selected to have low affinity or no detectable affinity. What you find is that single point mutations in the human receptors can make them high affinity. So they've acquired this low affinity by point mutations that have been selected. So this is a major difference in, in, in the evolution of the chimpanzee and the human, uh, between ch human and chimpanzees. And finally, you do not find in chimpanzees this grouping of A and B haplotypes that is quite discerned, discerned in humans. Uh, all the haplotypes, they're highly diverse, but they don't break out into these two different forms. So that even though there's a lot of similarity, 
the human species has gone down a different route. It looks as though the, the chimpanzee has sort of the acme of both activating and inhibitory receptors that all work really well. Humans have started to deactivate some of its receptors and to reorganize them into these two different haplotypes. We have looked at one population of uh, Venezuelan uh, Indians called the Yukpa. And they, like most Amerindian populations, have been through major epidemics of infectious disease and population bottleneck. And this population has recently gone through uh, combined epidemics of hepatitis B and D and malaria. And what's amazing is that even though there aren't many haplotypes, there's really only two gene content haplotypes, they're at equal frequency. One is A, one is B, and they don't share a single care factor. All the alleles are different. They also encompass all the care genes found everywhere else in the world except one. And so the way we've looked at this is that these people have gone through a, a really stressful history. And they've come out the other end capturing all of this care genetic diversity. And if you look at all the other populations in the world, all populations have A haplotypes and B haplotypes. So the conclusion we come to is that there's something com really competitively advantage about having both A and B haplotypes. And that even though you've gone through uh, this reduction in popula population number, the people who have survived capture this diversity. You can also see the effect of having these two types of haplotypes uh, in, in looking at disease associations is that if you look at hepatitis uh, C virus infection, it's beneficial to have two A haplotypes because they have this, com com this combination of care with the C1 ligand. So it's, it's good to be homozygous A haplotypes. On the other hand, if you're a pregnant woman, it's bad to have two A haplotypes because the likelihood of preeclampsia and other diseases of pregnancy goes up if the woman is double A haplotype and has a fetus carrying the C2 ligand. So here's a balancing selection in which uh, the A haplotypes are good for dealing with infectious disease, the B haplotypes are good for avoiding reproductive disease. And so what we think is that um, this simple model here of human existence is that when populations go through epidemics of infectious disease uh, and the population goes down, there's a selection for A haplotypes because they provide resistance to disease. Once the epidemic is over, it's beneficial to have B haplotypes because they're competitive in rebuilding the population and bringing it back uh, to a higher level. So I'd just like to finish up with one other aspect of this, that in the chimpanzee, which as I said, has a, has a really well-developed system, you find that the C1 epitope, which in humans is only on the C locus and not on the B locus. In the chimpanzees, 25% of their B variants have this C1 epitope. So in chimps, C1 is regulating both, uh, is being regulated from both the C locus and the B locus, but not in humans. However, there's one example where humans have reinvented a B locus allotype that carries the C1 epitope, and that's BW46 is, is the number, which was created by a gene conversion of this type here, 
where a small segment of sequence was donated by HLAC into B15 to create this new gene here, which also introduced substitutions that allowed B46 to have the C1 epitope. This gene conversion took place somewhere in the Yunnan province in China, uh, because since that time, this, this particular allele has, has been expanded in, into the region of Southeast Asia, as shown here, and we now estimate that some 200 million people are carrying this particular allotype. And it, in some of these populations, it's the highest, frequency, highest frequency of an HLA-B factor, HLA-B allotype. So here's an example where in human evolution, there was a trend to getting rid of C1 at the HLA-B locus. But then circumstances changed where it once, once again became advantageous. And we can see that here in having occurred over the last 30 or 40 million years in Southeast Asia. Well, that's just to show you that the B46 is a very good educator of, of NK cells and is functional in affecting the NK cell response. So in conclusion, what I'd like to say is that NK cells are key elements in two functions essential for human survival, immune defense and placental reproduction. Controlling NK cells are interactions between rapidly evolving HLA class 1 ligands and killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptors. That the human system of HLA class 1 and KIR differs significantly from that in all other species. And that these differences reflect the balance achieved from the competing needs of immune defense and reproduction. Thank you. My name is Ajit Varki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, the Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the executive director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> so in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. <laughs> Question number nine in the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, that's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is 
culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala in the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say, human. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.